0: Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives.
2: A great pleasure as always to have you with us for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You have to be good to play one game of AFL footy. If you play more than 250, you've got to be very good. And my guest today did that for the Saints between 1992 and 2006. His name is Justin Peckett. I'm not sure whether he answers to Justin or not, but we're about to find out. Hello, mate. day, mate.
1: Uh, good to be here. I, I do answer to Justin more often than not. Now, it's Frankie, of course. Where did that come from? Um, started back in primary school, early days, uh, a group of older kids. I, I still don't know to this day why. Perhaps I look like Frankenstein. I'm not too sure. But uh, <laughs> they bestowed Frankie upon me, and it's been with me ever since. And I've actually handed it down now to my daughter, Uh, Named her Frankie Coco, Um, so uh, she's now got the uh, Frankie Monica, and so uh, there's two Frankies in the household.
2: Righto. Do you actually, um, on official documents, do you get known as uh, Frankie, or is it always Justin?
1: Uh, It's Justin, but I have in the past a couple of uh, interstate trips with the with the Saints. Uh, I did get the odd plane ticket with F. Peckett on it, (laughs) Um, so it it does creep in everywhere, and uh, you never know when you're going to get it.
2: Now, uh, speaking of your daughter. Uh, have
1: you got a television at your place? How I, many, do, I do now. How many kids have you got? Uh, seven kids. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, so uh, I've worked out what causes it and yes. I've put a stop to that. So All I'd be right. very surprised if I had an, an eighth. Um, but yeah, seven kids, it's, um, it's not something I recommend to people. Did you think that you were going to be a father of seven when you set out on the journey? Uh, I'm not great at uh, plans. So uh, just did what felt good at the time. And, uh, you know, the wife, uh, Loved having kids, uh, loves being a mother and uh, uh, she really determined how many we were going to have and so I just kept uh, doing my bit and uh, once we got to seven, I did sort of turn around and say, oh, I reckon that's enough. So I put my foot down.
2: I'm sure you love them all equally, but what's the most challenging part about having seven?
1: Uh, look, spending quality time individually with them is, is difficult, but uh, we've got two girls at a uh, girl either end, so at bookends, and then the five boys in between. And so... um. It's the fights and the arguments and the the testosterone in the house which which gets difficult at times, And just knowing when to step in and when to just to let them go and sort it out themselves. How many are still living with you? Six. Five. So <laughs> <laughs> The oldest one, Tian, she's uh, 28. She's um, you know, living out of home and, and lived, left pretty quickly as soon as she could. Uh, and we've got six at home still. So five boys and, and Frankie, the youngest girl at home.
2: And what's changed over the journey, I guess, is that uh, the boys – Obviously, people would have thought, well, you played 250 games. The boys might want to play footy, but the girls can play footy now, too, if they want Absolutely. to.
1: Absolutely. Frankie's not quite there yet. She's, um, she's in footy tipping. She watches the footy. She kicks the footy in the backyard with myself and her, and her brothers. Uh, but we think we may have her uh, convinced to play footy next year in under 12. So we're quite happy with that. So um, she's, she's a girl, but she's also uh, got uh, five older brothers. So I think she's well placed to play footy.
2: Now, you said before that you're not good with organisational skills, um, but you are a man who's involved in an outfit that tries to get football clubs to their optimum level, leading teams. Now, I want to ask you about that, because I think everybody's heard of leading teams, but I'm not sure that everybody knows what they do. What do you do?
1: In its simplest form, we go into any team or organisation and we help them to improve their performance. And uh, the way we do that is by focusing on what we call dynamics, and that's people, relationships, communication, uh, how you give feedback, um, leadership. You know, it's the cultural side of the team or the organisation and how that impacts on a team or organisation's performance to be able to, you know, um, deliver on their game plan or meet their targets, their KPIs. Essentially, that's what we do. There's a lot of uh, myths and stories around it. But essentially, getting people in a room and being able to have conversations around performance and, and, and behaviour and expectations is is really the nub of what we do. Is it an exact science because... Clearly, sometimes it works, but it doesn't always work. No, uh, we we often say that our model is relevant for any team, but clearly not every team would uh, embrace our model. It's an empowerment model, and so not every leader and not every team uh, sees value and empowerment in order to support performance. So we're not for everybody, and that's okay. We're pretty comfortable with that.
2: Would the Justin Peckett or the Frankie Peckett, uh, who was starting to come up through the ranks, have appreciated leading teams and the... Um honesty sessions that go along
1: with it sometimes to be honest uh, when Ray McLean first came to the Saints in the summer of 94 95 I sat in the back of the room with my arms folded and I was very very suspicious and skeptical of what this model was about Um, but after a period of time I could start to see the benefit to us as a club the team and, and for me individually but it did take me a little while to to warm into it so you're the boss now aren't you well, I'm one of them. I guess I'm a director, and so I've, um, you know, I believe in it so much. You know, I've uh, I've bought into the company. It's something I'm passionate about. Believe in. I see it work really well, and I've seen it fail dismally as well. But um, I think it's something that for me, it's it transcends. You know, uh, sport. It's it's any team. It's also at home, um, which I've been able to drag what I've learned from leading teams into all aspects of my life. Okay, so how does it help you at home? Um, it doesn't help me in terms of uh, getting the kids in line, but. Just in terms of what type of husband I want to be or a father I want to be, you know, having a clear sense and clarity around what I stand for as an individual, uh, they're things that we introduce to our clients and they're things that I live and breathe. And I think it's helped me with my relationships uh, that I have with my wife, the relationships I have with my kids, my friends, you know, um, in all the other roles that I play in my life. And, and so I've been able to, over the years, drag a lot of what I've learned into, into those aspects of my life.
2: Obviously, Frankie, a lot of the conversation that we're going to have is going to be about AFL football and, and your role in yep. it. But leading teams branches out beyond AFL football. Who are the, some of the other sports and some of the other people that you've worked with in your time?
1: Uh, look, in my time, I've worked in uh, well a number of AFL clubs. I've worked in the NRL, the NRU, um, uh, basketball, soccer, um, at the moment, the leading teams is working with the Aussie Diamonds, the netballs, and I have worked with them for a long period of time. Um, we've got the Adelaide Crows and the Brisbane Lions. It um, Chops and Changes, from year to year, uh, we've worked with the Swans for the last uh, 14 years or so. Haven't had much to do with them this year, but we'll more than likely be back with them next year. Uh, and then we work across all types of organisations. It's really down to a leader or leaders that are open to our, our particular model. You mentioned the
2: NRL. Uh, you've worked with Wayne Bennett, I believe, before. What's it like, uh, the acceptance level from him who's been entrenched in the game? Uh, he's certainly got his beliefs about the way things should happen. Is he open to changing those or to
1: examine those in the way that you want to do that? Look, at the time, he wasn't. So, um, you know, it was it was hard work. It was difficult to get Wayne to really embrace the empowerment model. Now, he's an incredibly successful coach, has won a number of premierships, on the back of being an autocratic leader. Mm. Uh, so really it was Wayne's whale the highway and everyone at the Brisbane Broncos knew that. And so it was quite difficult to get them to really buy into the, the empowerment model. Um, but he did see aspects of it that he thought would benefit the players, but not so much for him. So that makes it difficult, which means you know, we didn't have a long association with the Brisbane Broncos.
2: So if someone like Wayne Bennett says, okay, I can see the value in A, B and C, but I'm not doing X, Y and Z, Does that hinder your program
1: and what you're trying to do? Yeah, absolutely. So we're really looking for a leader to embrace the model in its entirety. uh, And it challenges leaders the most because ultimately leaders are the ones that we expect to role model, uh, live and breathe what the the team or or the organisation is espousing. So um, having them buy in to role model to show everybody else the way is really important. So if you've got a leader that's 50-50 or likes a part but doesn't like another part of the model, it just makes it very difficult to get others on board. Interested to hear you say that you've done a lot of work with the Swans,
2: but you're not necessarily working with them this year, but you might get back on board next year.
1: Why that gap? Uh, well, we've been working with them, for, obviously, for a long period of time. Um, there's a combination of where, I mean, the Swans are a very good organisation from a leadership and cultural point of view, very, very strong. And so there's elements of, you know, they, they have a lot of knowledge and experience with our model. They are willing and able and capable of uh, applying it internally themselves. And we've had um, experiences even at the Hawks where we work with them for a period of time, they win a couple of flags, they feel they're self-sufficient, spend a year or two away, but then start to drift and lose a bit of the rigour and the accountability. And so they often come back and say, look, we've drifted a little bit. It'd be good to get you guys back in just to help us straighten straighten ourselves up and, and get that rigour and accountability. And I think the Swans have started to perhaps sense a bit of that this year. And so we're in some conversations around what it might look like for you know, an engagement next year and beyond.
2: We're sitting in a radio studio together for the first time, but it's not the first time that we've worked together.
1: No, it's not. uh old work colleagues down at the VFL, With um, uh, I, uh, I think I did three or four games uh, as special comments, uh, mm-hmm. sitting alongside yourself, and... Uh, I was uh, the first person to replace the great uh, Phil Cleary, um, which was controversial and huge fills to uh, fill, which I didn't fill (laughs) because I wasn't very good at it. And as I've mentioned to many people, I've got a good head for radio. So it was a short stint, but... uh, Uh, an enjoyable one, but not something that was ever going to be a career path for me.
2: What did you make of coming into a commentary box? Because there's a lot of things that go on in a commentary box that people don't see when the telecast is going to air and a lot of people talking at you and telling you how to do things and how quickly to do things.
1: Yeah. So I was totally confused with people talking in my ear and then I would stop talking. And uh, as someone who doesn't actually watch a lot of footy, uh, you do need to do some research and know a little bit about the players that you're uh, making special comments on. So, Uh, From that uh, point of view, I was uh, ridiculously bad at that um, because I didn't know the player's name. So it's very difficult. So I wasn't well prepared. I just came in and, you know, tried to wing it. And often when you try to wing it, things don't uh, go to plan. And the good thing was too, Frankie, that um, people don't quite realise because they see the commentary boxes
2: at the AFL and they're sitting on the wing, three levels up, right over the top of the interchange bench.
1: We didn't quite have
2: that at the VFL.
1: No, I'd describe it as a portable sort of somewhere right in the back of the ground in the corner with... uh, On the back of a truck. Obscured views and all those sorts of things. So, uh, no, it wasn't uh, great surroundings, but for people like yourself who are obviously very talented and skilled, uh, the surroundings didn't bother you guys too much. Well, they did when it
2: rained in that little box because we spoke about this. Phil was a guest on the program not that long ago. And uh, when it rained, we used to have a bloke with a squeegee on a six-foot pole out the front so we could actually see out the front window. (laughs) Uh, The conditions you've got to work in. Yes, all the high-tech stuff. Righto, let's start talking footy. and Let's talk about your path in footy. Where did it all begin for you?
1: Uh, Well, I uh, started my junior career at the Kringle Football Club, the the Bulls, um, from about the age of nine. uh, Played through to about under-17s, where I played in, I think it's my only uh, flag, Um, from the age of uh, nine till about uh, the age of uh, 40 when I finished playing footy completely. Um, so uh, John Beveridge, uh, which everyone uh, knows in, in footy circles, uh, invited me to come and train with the under-19s back then as a 16-year-old. So I went along. Uh, the deal was get you to train just for uh, one or two nights uh, a week um, with a view to potentially you know uh, joining us the year after. Um, I was a massive St Kilda supporter, as was my family. Grew up going to Moorabbin uh, every weekend that they played. So I said to John, can I train every night? Um, and he said, go for it. I did. I trained for a week, two weeks, then got a game, and then played the last six games of uh, that year, which would have been 1989, and then um, went back and played in Kringle under-17 grand final uh, premiership win, and then from 1990 uh, joined the Saints full-time and left at the end of 2006. But you actually got
2: delisted
1: early I on. I got delisted... Um, Uh, It would have been 1990 or 91. Um, I'd won the under-19s best and fairest. I'd played some twos games, um, uh, got delisted, uh, organised and met with uh, Ken Judge. I think he was coaching East Fremantle Sharks at the time and decided I was going to go and play over in Frio and spoke to them and they said, well, we'll probably have a second uh, Perth side in a few years' time. Come and play with us, see what happens and that might help uh, your football career. Saints at the same time said, why don't you just stick around and do the preseason over Christmas and we've got four picks. We might pick you up. Um, so I thought, well, I'll stay and train. They picked me up with their last pick in the uh, pre-season draft. And then in round four, I played my first senior game. You would have been only human to think
2: when you were delisted, though. Gee, this has all of a sudden ended pretty quickly. The dream's ended.
1: Oh, well, uh, ended before it even started. So yeah, a yeah, handful of under-19 games um, and, and went okay. Um, and then a handful of reserves games and then, yeah, that's it. So it was, a, I reckon when I look back, I was a bit dirty on that. I didn't think that I, it warranted being delisted, but I look back now and go, well, it was probably the best thing for me because uh, perhaps I knuckled down a bit more and trained a bit harder. And, um, um, you know, as history shows, uh, they did pick me up and I, I went on to play a few games.
2: A few, yeah, two hundred and fifty-two. In fact, uh, the first one though wasn't in the number that we became very familiar with. Yep, you would have got pretty tired carrying around the first number, wouldn't you? What was it?
1: It was in the fifties. Could have it been fifty-three. Fifty-three. Or, or, three, I yeah. Think okay. Was. So it's funny because I look back now, I would have loved to have kept that number for my whole career. Uh, Why is that? Uh, well, I just think make your number your own. Just a lesson that I've learned. Um, Do you reckon one puts a bit of pressure on you? Um. Well, I grew up a Saints supporter, and, and I've got photos of a, as me as a ten-year-old with a, you know Saints jumper on with the number on back with Barks and all that sort of stuff. I don't know if I felt pressure because uh, there's a few players that had number one before me after Barks uh, that probably didn't you know play at the level that Barks did, so I didn't necessarily feel pressure. Um, but I just look back now and think, you know, you got a number. It was your first number. Would have been great to just to stick with that number for the, for the for the career. And when I went back and played for Keringle, um post my AFL career, I actually asked for number 51. So I went back to the 50s and I carried that round for six or seven years. Um, so 53, yeah, I would have loved to have kept it. So how
2: did the transition come from 53 to 1? Who came along to you and said, we're thinking of taking 52
1: off? Yeah. Um, so I think, again, just with the list and the way that the list were um, shrinking, the numbers were shrinking, um, they offered me number 29. And I just said, yep, okay, no worries, I'll take number 29. Uh, and then I got offered number eight. And so, yeah, no worries, I'll take number eight. And then uh, I got the offer to take number one. I said, yep, yeah, beauty, I'll take number one. Mm. Um, and then had that for the remainder of my, probably around maybe nine or 10 years for the, for the rest of my career.
2: It's a long journey, and we're going to explore some more of it when we come back on the other side of the break. Justin Peckett, Frankie Peckett is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life, for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. More of his story coming up after the break.
0: You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives.
2: Good to have you with us for our chat with Justin Peckett on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. So you get a second chance at the Saints. You said you're a lifelong Saints supporter. You walk into that
1: change room. Was that daunting? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, watching the Saints live or watching them on TV, barracking for them, my whole family barracking for them, uh, to walk in and, and to see the guys you've been watching on TV or, or live on the ground was uh, was eye-opening, um, very daunting. And I reckon I hid in the corner for a while uh, in my first weeks. Um, but, you know, football clubs are great places to be welcomed. And so they see you standing in the corner and they, they drag you in and get you involved. So, um It took a few weeks to feel like, um, you know, I'm there. And uh, once I did, yeah, I had a great time.
2: So who were the blokes in the change room who made that effort to come over to you and to welcome you into the fold?
1: Yeah, so um, from a senior's point of view, there was guys like, uh, you know, Tim Pekin, who, um, you know, I've developed a really strong relationship with. Um, There was guys like Sean Ralph Smith, um, you know, and and guys like Harves and Lowey and and Berkey, who all from the peninsula and who... um, were also very welcoming. So there was a core group there that of senior players that um, you know, were very embracing and, and uh, were keen to, um, as a young person, get me involved in, in, in what was happening. One thing we knew about the Saints, Frankie, they knew how to celebrate.
2: Um, it wasn't often celebrating wins at various times in the football club's history. How was your attitude as a young man when you got there? You've spoken about this pretty openly.
1: Yeah, look... Um, yeah, you know, I grew up in Frankston and, um, you know, the four pubs on the corner and didn't mind a beer with my mates and all those sorts of things. And uh, the club, from a cultural point of view, um, not overly successful, obviously, from a premiership point of view, um, I guess I got sucked into a bit of that. Not every player was involved, but certainly there was a strong um, cultural element where, you know, to be a good bloke, to be able to have a few beers, to have a few stories to tell was a was a quick way to get embraced. And if you could get a kick on the weekend, that seemed to be a bit of a bonus. So uh, we had some great players there. There's no doubt about that individually. But from a team perspective, you know, we weren't necessarily always a very good team. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that, or one of the constraints to, to high performance and being a, a successful team, and you learn this as you go, is that, you know, your behaviour off the field is is uh, as equally as important as the behaviour on the field. And so you, you get sucked in, you see what gets rewarded, you see what gets noticed, you know, you go to the Saints disco after a game yeah. and, you know, all those sorts of things. And as a young person, you can get sucked along if you're not strong enough to be able to, to, to make better choices. And so there's no doubt that I, along with others, got in, sucked in and involved and, and then led others through that process until a point in time came where, you know, again, uh, Ray from leading teams came in and, and we, we started to draw a bit of a line in the sand and make better decisions. So you said some did and some didn't.
2: Did that cause a bit of a... Uh, two-camps situation in the team, the the ones who were out having a good time as well as trying to play good footy, but the others who were a bit more straight down the line?
1: Yeah, no doubt. And I think, it, you know, you, you you question people and there's obviously um, reservations and questions around trust. And, you know, you look at a bloke and you look him in the eyes, you know, has he done everything possible to get himself right for this game? And then in the heat of battle in a game, is he the one that's going to let you down? And I know there was times when I walked into the club a bit sheepish, couldn't look folks in the eye because I knew that perhaps I hadn't behaved—not perhaps I hadn't behaved in a way that is conducive to me giving my best on field. And you know, I went through periods like that, and there's no doubt others would have. And so um, there was times when you know we're reviewing performance, and you know, there's a there's a group of guys that clearly have done everything possible to, to do the right thing, and then there's guys that haven't. And so yeah, there's that tension, and so it's about being able to work your way through that and creating a, a stronger weight of numbers of guys who are doing the right thing more often than not. To give you the best chance to perform at the level that you should be as a as an you know, as an elite organisation. So, what was the attitude of
2: the coaching staff? Were they prepared to take the bad so long as you produce the good on the weekend?
1: Did they turn a blind eye to it? Oh, look, look. I imagine sometimes they may have. They may have chosen not to say anything. But I, I know that at times, absolutely, the coaches were were prepared to um, you know, review strongly, hold people accountable, um, and address. Challenges and issues that individual players might have been having, or perhaps a group of players might have been having uh, around their preparation. So, I, I always felt that um, I, I wasn't necessarily going to get away with anything that I might uh, behave a certain way, but I'd I'd be rewarded, but but I'd also be challenged with decisions that I was making. And, and over a period of time, again, weighted numbers, um, you start to make more choices in line with with the greater good and where we want to get to as a as a group. Maturity can take a
2: while. It can come very quickly to some, but it takes a while for others. And probably maturity for you was shaped by what happened to your dad. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, so um, my dad died in a car accident uh, the weekend of my 18th birthday. I had a very strong, close relationship with my dad. Um, There's no doubt that uh, impacted some of the lifestyle choices that I made. Um, And I take responsibility for those. but I, I guess you know i went off the rails a little bit and used my dad's death as an excuse for being able to behave how i wanted to and that certainly had an impact at home had an impact on my job it had an impact on football and all those things so um there's no doubt about that and and i can certainly um empathize uh with players in particular when you hear about challenges they've got in their in, in their life and how that um creeps into you know their workplace um but certainly uh you know the light came on a bit later for me than might have for others um but I stand behind all the choices that I made and take responsibility for all of them and, and and part of that is help me get to where I am today so it's a it's a learning it's something I draw on every now and then and certainly helps shape me particularly as a dad uh, and a husband moving forward. Did the light Frankie really
2: come on for you given the fact that your dad died in a car accident that you could have actually followed down that path as well?
1: Yeah look there's times in in early days after that that I probably didn't care too much what happened to me and um I'd go to so far as to say that I I reckon at times I had a bit of a death wish and and there was times when I engaged in risky behavior drink driving um which took me a while to get out of um and there was times when I uh, just prob- yeah, didn't really care too much if I hurt myself um or if I if I died um and that was a mental state that I was in and it took a bit to get out of that um, but I was able to get out of it and, and have never gone back to that, which is, which is good. Did
2: you get out of it yourself or did someone help drag
1: you out of it? Uh, I had, uh, help from others. Um, you know, Malcolm Blight wasn't a coach for us for a long period of time, but one thing he did for me, which absolutely helped was, um, uh, forced me to get counseling. Um, so the club, um, provide an opportunity for me to get some counseling, which I did. And I think at that point in time, I was really open to getting it. So, uh, that had a huge impact and help helped me tremendously. Um and my mum, um, and and other family members and um certainly some of my close mates also played a role in just helping me to straighten myself up and, and and again make better choices more often than not. And 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 my role and my and my experience with Ray McLean at leading teams and my involvement in leading teams also helped me um absolutely um get a bit more clarity around you know who I am and what I want to stand for. Did you want to be
2: helped, or did you have to be dragged, kicking and screaming into it? Because it's all very well for people to say this is what you should be doing; don't be doing this. But there's a certain reluctance from some people to actually go along with those suggestions. What was it like for you? No, I I,
1: I was happy to get the help, yeah. absolutely. And, I, and clearly, that that is a factor in in how successful the help is. So, you know, I think about all of the the um, the programs that are available to AFL players these days, and and I certainly had access to those as well. It's an amazing level of support, but it's also amazing how many players wouldn't be utilising them to their full extent. And and somewhere along the line, something has to change in their own head to, to want to utilise those support services or to have people you know uh, be able to help them. So I certainly was at a point in time where I, I welcomed the help and went into it absolutely um, 100% committed to it. Once you got that help, could you see the change in your football? Um. My preparation to my football absolutely changed dramatically. Um, uh, I think it enabled me to last longer than what I would have if I didn't. So one of the things I did achieve was longevity. And uh, not every AFI player gets to do that. And I think in part that was because of my different attitude to the way that I uh, saw my role within the football club, uh, the way that I prepared as a as a player, the way I looked after myself as a, as a person. I mean, I'm not perfect, but... Um, the change was was significant enough to which enabled me to to play my role and and stay inside a club and 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 contribute uh, at the level I did it didn 't turn me into a into a brown low medal winning player, but it enabled me to do what I need to do to to contribute in a meaningful way and 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 last as long as I did. We mentioned more than two hundred and fifty games. Do you think it should have been more than that oh, i 've got no doubt um, when I look back, I think about uh, the way I played some inconsistency some some injury which everyone gets. Um, I should have played 300. Um, they may not have been 300 great games, but <laughs> I think um, when, when you make your debut, debut in 1992 and you retire at the end of 2006, there's enough time and space now to have played 300 games, absolutely. Mm. What was the
2: early team like that you came into? Uh, as I said, there wasn't much of a culture of winning at St Kilda. Things were starting to change. There were some signs that it was starting to change. What was the team like for the first few years?
1: Well, when I played my first senior game in, in 92, it was a very talented team and, and uh, Kenny Sheldon had taken the club to finals um, in 90 or 91. So it was a talented team. Um, but There's a few ratbags in there. Um, again, and that's, that's at the time, that's footy club. So it was a talented team. Uh, it was exciting, uh, but a few ratbags, a few personalities, and clearly some of the best players that have ever played the game were, were in that team. And so... Uh, again, as a, as a new player, as a young player coming in, it was is really just to sit back, watch, observe, and and find ha, find out ways in which you're going to fit in, and how can you add value, and how can and you know what gets noticed, what gets rewarded, and then as a young bloke, doing your best to be able to fit in that way.
2: Did you see the signs that '97 and the year that you had to go all the way to the grand final was just around the corner? Was that was that ray of light there that you could? finally end that premiership drought that everybody
1: at St Kilda talks about? Yeah, I think, um, it took a little while, but certainly with all the things that we're having, uh, you know, uh, in the, in the, uh, back room, so to speak, around addressing culture and looking at who we're recruiting and, uh, you know, key appointments across the club, um, from a you know, board and executive, um, point of view and fitness point of view, you could just see that the, we're making better choices as a club, uh, as a whole, um, and, and and players that were coming in, the players that were exiting, we're just we're just creating a a, a good environment, a good culture, uh, and a and a culture that was more conducive to playing you know, football at a high level. You know, and Stan was really driving it hard, um, and giving more ownership to the players, and so the players were becoming more and more invested in their own careers and more invested in the team and and where it went, and so we're becoming less tolerant for things that would hold us back, and so you could just get a sense that that was building, and then you know, you do that hard work and there's an element of belief there and then all of a sudden, you know, you start winning as well and so that really solidifies your belief and so it just started to build and snowball and I just remember times in 97 driving to the game really confident no matter at what stage of the game was that if we were behind, we could win and when you drive into a game with your mindset like that and knowing also you've done all the hard work to prepare, that just puts you in a very strong position and so... um, Confidence levels were high and going to games was high. And so the, the 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 grand final was a culmination of all of that. But on the day, yeah. <laughs> all of that uh, doesn't necessarily count because it's, it's on the day. And on the day, we, we missed our opportunity. What are your memories of that day? I've never watched it since. Uh, I try not to talk about it too much. My memories going into the day was just one of super of excitement, obviously. Um, and then it became an absolute nightmare in that second half. Mm. Um and then uh, when the siren blows, it's, it's, it's the worst experience you, that you've ever had uh, from a football perspective. Uh, so you get all of that in the one day. Um, but, but I guess as the game was unfolding in that second half in particular and uh, a sense that this is it, we're done, um, yeah, it's, it's devastating. You must have a look at someone like
2: Jack Graham who played in the Premiership in his fifth game a couple of years ago and think, oh, gee, he doesn't realise how lucky he is.
1: Well, a- absolutely. Um, it's, I, I do look at it and I get jealous and it's one of the reasons why it's only been recently where I've actually been able to, on grand final day, watch a grand final. And, and I've gone through a period where I've never watched a grand final. I've never been to one other than 97 where I played in one. I'd always have a barbecue at our place and host a barbecue, but I wouldn't watch it. And now I can watch it. So I've got over myself a little bit, I, I can watch it, but I still get a, a, a terrible feeling in my guts when I watch the players get their medals and they're celebrating because I know that I miss that opportunity and I'll never, ever get it again. Do you think you'll ever sit down and watch 97 or is that consigned to the dustbin of history? Um, I've seen highlights and I'm happy just to stick to the highlights. I've, I'm really not interested in watching it and reliving um, you know, what happens at the end. I know what happens at the end. I don't need to watch it again. As someone
2: now involved in leading teams, we're seeing in a sporting sense a bit of fun coming in. It's not that long ago, the first test in England, they were telling jokes before the boys went out. There's the designated joke teller at Richmond who tells jokes in huddles. Is it important to have that light and shade that it's not all serious business and
1: the pressure that's sitting on your shoulders all the time? Oh, look, I think you need circuit breakers. I think you need to know what works for you as a collective group what works for you as an individual, what might work for you in smaller groups. So anything that allows the players, in this example, in, in terms of footy, allows the players to, to be switched on, uh, to be focused, to be ready to go. And if, if it's a joke and a bit of a laugh and some music, it doesn't really matter as long as um, it, it adds value and it, it benefits performance. Um, and so um, whatever works for you. Speaking of music, when we come back on the other side of the break, I want
2: to touch on music because I think you are in a music video at some stage. We it's might true. talk about that when we come back on the other side of the break with Frankie Packett on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Hope you're enjoying the show.
0: You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives.
2: Hope you're enjoying the chat with Frankie Peckett on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. I'll come to that music clip in a moment, but you mentioned before the break, Frankie, that you make a grand final, you expect that it's just going to happen. What were the ensuing years like after that 97 grand final?
1: Yeah, you know, as I mentioned before, after the 97, once that's died down a little bit, um, there's still confidence in, in the group. Um, there's confidence in where we're going. You know, we'll, we'll get there again. Mm. Um, but then we had a disastrous finals campaign in, in, in 98. Uh, and then what can happen at clubs um, yeah, for a number of different reasons, but, um, you know, key people start to question and, and uh, um, there's decisions made. And so the club starts to go in a different direction. And so... You know, strength of leaderships about holding your line and um unfortunately we weren't able to do that and so you know Stan goes and 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 we get new coaches in and you know just slightly different direction and different players and um you know we lost a bit of that uh cultural identity I guess that we had through those mid to late or, yeah mid to late 90s with Stan that really underpinned strong performances and so um we just lost our way and it, and it's take it took a, a little while to get back and then you know Grant Thomas came in and, and I think to his credit he was able to bring the group together and you know build some strong relationships, get some good people in the club and were able to rebuild and and, and then start to have some really strong performances again. And so yeah, you know, I went from, you know, not playing finals to then all of a sudden playing in a grand final, then to not playing in finals and then all of a sudden, you know, to the end of my end of my career playing in a number of finals with a with a real chance to get to the grand final. So, you know, some peaks and troughs there, but um it would have been good to uh, obviously win the 97 one, because that mm. history shows that was the only real opportunity. Was 2004 the one that got away subsequently? Oh, look, I reckon that, you know, we were very close. I think I think Brisbane won it that year, and I reckon, you know, Brisbane had won three previous, and I reckon, you know, you're a chance that was the one that whoever was going to play Brisbane might have been a chance to, to knock them off, and, you know, Port Adelaide, to, to to their credit, knocked us off in that prelim, and, yeah, that was, that was our second real big chance.
2: You must have probably felt as though your chances were running out at that stage because you'd been in the system for quite a while, you know, up to about 14 years at that stage. How was the body holding up?
1: Well, the body was pretty good. Um, you know, Grant Thomas was playing me off the bench. Uh, I was missing games here and there, not necessarily having to play in the twos, just have a week off. He knew what I was capable of. He knew what I'd bring to the team. And so my role was really as a backup, um, you know, to the, you know, to the younger kids coming through. So, um, I was happy with that to a point. I mean, you want to play the game, but I but I knew that I had to adopt this role because I felt that the club was going in the right direction and I felt we were thereabouts. And so I was prepared to do whatever it took to, to play that role. And if it was just a bit part, I'd take it because I would have hated to have retired and then having to watch the Saints play in a grand final in, in a couple of those sort of later years in in uh, the mid-2000s before I um, retired knowing that I could have been there if I had have just adopted the role that Grant wanted me to play in particular, which was a you know part-time role. So the body was actually pretty fresh. As an older bloke, you, you, you train uh, to, to how your body needs you to train. So you know no running over Christmas till about January, you know um, not doing too much of the work in the, in, the, in the practice games, playing a bit part during the game. So the workload wasn't as much, so my body was quite good. Doing a lot of yoga, a lot of Pilates, just being ready for when I got the call-up basically. You mentioned earlier you should
2: have played 300. Was 250 a real carrot for you? Did you want to get to 250? Did it have that nice ring about it as you were getting towards the end?
1: I would have Yeah, I, I, I would have liked to have played 250 as opposed to 248. But yeah. at the end of the day, look, it, the game tally is not that important. I look back and go, OK, I played 252, but I didn't play in a premiership. And that's the bit that really annoys me. So people say, yeah, you played 250, so that's great. It is. But I would have preferred to play in a premiership and that's the bit that I sort of hang my hat on. As a past player, going to a past player's day, it's great to catch up with guys that you played with and had shared experiences with. But just to be able to then go back and have that premiership as well would um would be brilliant. And and to be introduced, you know, when you introduced me, I would have loved to mm. to hear, you know, premiership player. That's that's something that I think most players would like to get at the end of their career. Yeah.
2: The music video. Tell us about it. was it Tism? TISM, yes. This is Serious Mum. Mm -hmm. Um, How did you you find your way into a music video, Frankie?
1: Well, um, members of TISM are are St Kilda supporters, uh, and they were looking to film uh, a video clip for uh, a new song they'd put out, uh, Greg the Stop Sign. Um, I was a massive TISM fan. I I love my music, and uh, I'd seen TISM many times live, Uh, and so... um, uh, the club had said they need some players to be in their film clip. So as soon as I heard that, uh, my hand was up. I think I was the only player on the whole list that knew who Tism were. So I was really excited. No one else was. Um, so I got an opportunity to be in the film clip, um, which I relished. And uh, it's it's there forever now. And so it's often a talking point for people that come across it and, and, and notice my ugly head in the video uh, doing some bicep curls at the start of the video.
2: Righto. Do you see it on YouTube? Is that where we can find it? If you're
1: desperately looking to see it, yes, you'd find it on YouTube.
2: What's the name of the song again? Greg the Stop Sign.
1: Greg the Stop
2: Sign. Yes. Can you Tism. tell us what that was all about, the song?
1: was actually uh, a song that's uh, quite a serious message behind it, and, and it's about uh, young people. Uh, it's about um, .05, uh, the road toll, um, life choices, all those sorts of things. So um, TISM often had... Uh, Serious messages behind behind their songs. Um, but it's a great song. Uh, it's one of my favourites and uh, Tism will always be one of my favourite bands.
2: On that subject of 0.05, now that you're uh, in the middle of your life, yep. um, you've made mistakes along the way and you're happy to admit them. Is it hard to say to young people, do as I say, not do as I've done?
1: Yeah, it is. Um, I think it's about sharing... You've got some experience, uh, just having teenage and, and adult kids myself, it's, you know, telling them automatically, more often than not, just sh- shuts them down. So it's about asking them questions and getting them to talk their way through it a little bit and getting them to explore consequences and then understanding the difference con- or the different consequences between choices that you make. And, and, and so, you know, getting them to explore that and coming to their own realizations. Um, you educate them as best you can, but there's certainly times when you've got to put your foot down and say, no, no. Here's, here's where it's at. Um, but I just try and talk to the kids and, and, and share my experience. Here's what happened to me. It could happen to you. It happens all the time. You read about it. You hear about it. Uh, but just getting them to try and understand the, the consequences to their choices that they're making.
2: You've got a good bond with your kids, obviously. Um, I think I read somewhere where you said that your son dresses like you or you dress like your son. Is that right?
1: Well, I and you can look at me now, but... Um, You've got the baseball cap on, got yeah, the lumberjack shirt on. Yeah, I, I do often tell my kids to stop dressing like me. Um, <laughs> I'm a simple man, so flannelette shirt and, and shorts normally. But um, yeah, it's it's just something. I, I think I'll always dress like this, as even as, a, as an older man. Um, um, just the way I am, I guess. Just
2: one last thing on your football career. And it's a question that I ask a lot of guys who've played many years. So you were 16 years in the system, something like that. When the time came and you'd played your last game, did it seem like it had gone in the blink of an eye?
1: Uh, it, uh, well, it did, and it does now. When you look back, it goes very quickly. And to think that I've been out of the game for um, as long as I have, it just it, it flies. Um, and I remember my last game was against Melbourne in, in a final, uh, which they beat us, and um, yeah, I fell into a heap, knowing the realization right there and then: this is it, I'm done. Fell into a heap. Um, uh, and it happened yeah, very quickly. So, from yeah, the age of sixteen, when you walk into the club, to the age of you know thirty three, thirty four, when you when you walk out, it does go in the blink of an eye. Um, and I don't, you say that to people, and and it's obviously a cliche, but it's the reality.
2: And you almost grieve for a little while, don't you? It's a different type of grief to the traditional grief that we're used to and that you experience with your dad, but you do grieve that sort of thing when it's been a part of your life and a part
1: of your existence almost every day and then it stops. I think I might be different to some. Um, You certainly grieve a little bit, but for for me, you know, I had a bunch of kids, had a wife, I was studying, I was working um, uh, and so I was really ready for the next phase. So um, you you grieve because you miss the camaraderie, you, you miss the, you know, walking into the club I don't miss the meetings. I don't miss all the scrutiny. I don't miss all the other things that sat around. I miss playing the game. And so that's why I went back and played seven years of local footy because I actually miss the playing of the game. Um, I still miss playing it now. I'd love to play now. We'll talk about that local footy when we come back on the other side of the break with our final
2: segment with Justin Peckett. This is your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We'll wrap things up with Frankie on the other side of the break.
0: You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives.
2: Our final segment with Frankie Peckett on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. So you get to the end of your AFL career and as you said, you still wanted to keep playing footy and you played for a
1: while. Yeah, I'd never really played uh, local senior footy, um, hadn't had that opportunity, so I really wanted to, to play some local footy. I went back and I played and coached my old junior senior club for three years, played for another three or four after that, uh, and absolutely loved every minute of playing local footy. I stepped away um, as about a 40-year-old, 41-year-old, uh, but loved every minute of um playing local footy. I was also chasing uh, the elusive senior premiership as well so that was one of the reasons why I kept playing.
2: Do you think it'll be long before you do eventually get to see a grand final live with the red white and black playing there?
1: It might be a few years yet but uh, they'll definitely get there they'll make it and they'll win one and they'll win more than uh, a couple but um, there's still a few years off it yet but I would expect them to play finals next year that would be my expectation and then from there Who knows what can happen?
2: Just on the subject of watching grand finals, and you spoke about it before that it's only recently you've been able to watch it. Were you watching that day that Milne kicked the ball that could have bounced one way or the other, or did you not see that one?
1: Uh, I've seen the highlights of it, uh, but I wouldn't have been watching um, the game too closely.
2: Right. Final question. In all the journey, in all the suburban footy and the time at the Saints and the boy from Keringle. What was the pinnacle? What was the moment when you close your eyes and you think about your
1: footy career that springs straight to mind? Running out onto the MCG, regardless of the weather, regardless of who you're playing. MCG is just a magical place. And I used to love running out in the MCG. It was just, just brilliant and to be able to do that. And, you know, you go to the MCG now, you have, uh, you know, tourists who come to the MCG. I mean, it's just an amazing place and to be able to say to them, I've actually played there. It's just brilliant. I, I love the fact that I've been able to play on the MCG.
2: Frankie, it's been an incredible journey, 252 games. Um, you've spoken so openly about the downs as well as the ups. It's been great to share some time with you. And who knows, in the future, we may even get to do commentator and special comments together at some stage again.
1: That'd be great, but it won't be on TV. Good on you,
2: mate. Thanks Good for you, coming Pete. in. Thanks. Justin Peckett joining us on This Is Your Sporting Live for Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives. Another great of the game coming up next week at the same time. Hope you can join us then. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au
0: now.